So I'm a clinical psychologist and I work both in practice and as an academic um, and researcher at the University of Essex. I have had a long standing interest in trauma in general and the impacts of child sexual abuse in particular for lots of reasons, um, some personal, um, some political, some clinical. And so a couple of years ago, I was working full time at Essex after having cut back my clinical work. And I was approached by the Truth Project, which was one arm of the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. So the independent inquiry was set up in, in 2015 as a statutory public inquiry in response to a number of high profile scandals around child sexual abuse, Jimmy Savile, stuff that was happening in Westminster, some of the allegations that were being made about particular high profile politicians. Um, but also the sort of untold story of the independent inquiries establishment was it was also brought about as a result of years of campaigning by um, survivors who were often campaigning under the kind of um, under the radar of public awareness. But their sort of tireless advocacy and work towards demanding an inquiry so that so that that there could be a reckoning around um, the failure of institutions to protect children in public settings over many, many decades in England and Wales could be could be sort of realised. So I think a public opprobrium media interest sort of came um, alongside this very long term work by survivors to bring about this public inquiry, which ran from 2015 to 2022, was the largest public inquiry that has been commissioned in England and Wales. Um, and the Truth Project was one arm of it. So the Truth Project was an example of what there have been in other inquiries in other parts of the world, looking at child abuse and institutional failure in relation to child abuse and child abuse in institutional settings, um, where there's been a real move towards what a, an Australian sociologist called Kitty Wright has described, the turn towards testimony, the move away from looking for institution, from looking primarily to institutions to give accounts of the abuse that happened under their care, towards looking much more to survivor testimony as a key ingredient in how we understand institutional failings in historical contexts. So the Truth Project was an open offer to any adult in England and Wales who had been sexually abused, either in an institutional setting or who had been failed by public services, but had been abused in a home setting. So the idea was that we were looking at institutional failure. So that it's very obvious if someone's in a care home or is abused in a school or is abused in a church setting. But even in home settings, People, children are failed by social services, by the police, by their community. So it was an open offer to anybody who had been sexually abused to come and share their experience um, with the Truth Project in a confidential setting. Um, I had some initial contact with the Truth Project around some marketing and public awareness campaigns they were doing. 
And then there was an opportunity that came up to apply for a secondment. So I worked there for three years as the principal psychologist for the Truth Project and the clinical lead. Where I So I, I had a mainly operational clinical role where I oversaw um, the commissioning of services to support survivors, staff training around trauma-informed care, um, and managing any, helping to manage along with colleagues, any of the kind of challenges that people faced in coming to the Truth Project. I'm just thinking from the individual perspective of somebody who was sexually abused as a child, and that might be recent and it might be, you know, many decades ago, coming to tell their story and the positive and negative, you know, the, the beneficial effects of that and the potentially incredibly harmful effects of that. Tell us a little bit about some of those stories and the sorts of people you worked with and heard and the impact it had on them of being involved in that. I think that's a really good question, Andre. And I think it links in with one of the big taboos in mental health, really, that, that, that you and I work in. It's this fear that clinicians have about opening a can of worms, that there's a real anxiety that if we ask people about their child sexual abuse experiences, that it will immediately destabilise their mental health, that it will lead to increase in risk um, because of a destabilisation. Um, and I think what I learned from the Truth Project is that actually for the majority of people who shared their experiences, 6,000 of them, that wasn't the case. The vast majority of people had a good experience. And we did some more formal research where we looked at a, 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 a sample of about 70 of people who came through the Truth Project. And we asked them about their experience. And of that 70 who participated in our survey and some follow-up qualitative interviews, only a very small number experienced ongoing re-traumatizing effects. Only a small number experienced a re-emergence of post-traumatic symptoms, for want of a better word. Now, those, those small number were incredibly important to understand because there was harm from sharing their experience. But actually... In comparison to the discourse that exists within mental health services, and there's research which supports this around not asking because you might make things worse. When the Truth Project asked in a way that was safe and people were supported to share their experience and they were given choice and control over how they did it, what they shared, the context in which they shared it in, and they were offered some support after they had been to the Truth Project as a follow-up, what we actually found was that the, the very heterogeneous group of people who came along, including people with mental health problems, there was not a significant deterioration for the majority of people who came. Um, and one of the things that I hope that the Truth Project can help mental health services learn is how to engage with survivors of child sexual abuse and other forms of sexual violence in a way that is safe but can enable them to share their experience and experience that validation and belief and the affirmation of their testimony, which for a large number of Truth Project participants was an incredibly important part in their healing. So there was very moving examples of, we had a range of ages of people who shared with the Truth Project from 18 to 87. 
And for some of our older participants, there were very moving cases where the abuse had happened over 70 years before and the person had never told anyone about what had happened to them. And it was the first time that they'd ever disclosed anything. And I'm thinking of one or two examples that were relayed to me by other people, by staff who were in these Truth Project sessions, where people said, I, I feel like I've let this go now. At the end of my life, I've let something go. And they described a sense of peace, really. That wasn't the case for everybody. For other people, it was tempestuous and difficult. But in our research, where we followed up with some Truth Project participants, even when we asked people about re-traumatizing directly, because that's one of the big risks, isn't it? When we asked people about the re-traumatization effects, some people said, yeah, there was more flashbacks. I did have nightmares again. I did feel a bit unsafe. But they didn't categorize that as re-traumatizing. They saw that as a necessary part of the process, that there was some destabilizing that happened as part of their experience. But that didn't mean that it led to a mental health crisis or that they perceived it as a negative impact. They saw it as part of the process, which then settled down again in the weeks after their session, whenever they were offered ongoing support. You know, I'm listening to what you're saying there. I'm kind of reflecting on the fact that we've got a very risk averse culture currently in the NHS and, and wider services. And as you say, we don't ask about stuff because we are frightened of causing harm, re-traumatising people. And it's not just the case with sexual abuse, is it? It's the case with self-harm and all sorts of other things, you know. Um, but what you're saying there is a very positive message to practitioners that you can ask and it will if you do it in the right way, it's potential for benefits for the person are huge. And I suppose I'm, I'm imagining professionals say it's all well and good him saying that, but that's what he was doing. But, you know, I'm working in a busy service. and There's all sorts of other things I have to do and targets that I have to meet and rules I have to apply. What would your advice be to those sorts of services? What do you think they can actually practically learn from what you did? The first thing I would say is that I completely understand why people would be reluctant and hesitant to delve into that topic with people in a sort of hasty way. I worked in a busy clinical job myself for a long time, and I understand the pressures. I think that when we think about child sexual abuse, we have to think about it both at an individual level and also at a much broader societal level. And so some of our hesitation as clinicians is not entirely about the well-being and the safety of the, the individual patient or client. It's also about our own discomfort. And it's also about our own shared lack of, us, of discourses and narratives where we're able to talk about this in a normalized way. It's a highly taboo topic. And I think what I would say to those clinicians is that ICSA and the Truth Project has begun to pave the way for enabling culturally validated and normalized ways of talking about something which has for a long time been unspeakable. So the work has already started. The clinician doesn't need to do it all on their own. And one of the things I would also say is that the Truth Project took its time with people. It didn't rush into it. 
people sometimes wanted to ring up. They were so desperate to share, or maybe they were in a traumatized state where there was a compulsion towards talking about it. And they would email and they would call up. And that's that was okay because we had the resource to manage that. But we also tried to get people to slow down the plan, to choose what they wanted to share, to not feel like they had to spill it all out in a way that might be re-victimizing, that might leave them feeling euphoric in the moment, and then two or three days down the line, have a sort of feel overcome with shame at the realization that they've kind of exposed something that's very private and vulnerable in a way that that that, that perhaps they regret. We tried to help people slow down a bit and make some choices and exert some control. So what I would say for clinicians is to enable them and for the service user to take their time as well. I've had some, I've um, I've got a PhD student, Susanna Elise, who's just finishing her work looking at trust in the context of relationships between adult survivors of child sexual abuse and different clinicians and professionals. It's a fantastic piece of work. And one of the findings that Susanna, and Susanna is also a survivor of child sexual abuse herself, so she has this very robust survivor methodology where she's gone in and been transparent with the participants and so has gleaned some really interesting information and and experience from them in a way that it may not have been as easy to do if you were coming in from purely a a sort of neutral research position. But one of the the findings that Susanna has got is that actually some of the survivors she spoke to were really preoccupied with the well-being of the clinician. They were worried about the impact of telling them on them. They were thinking, can this person manage it? Can they handle it? Are they going to be okay if I tell this dirty and disgusting thing that I feel I have to carry inside of me and take responsibility for? They were worried about victimizing the clinician because they had such an elevated sense of responsibility for something that had been done to them, because that's part of the nature of the abuse. And so one of the findings from Susanna's research is you have to test out as a survivor the the ability and the metal and the and the the space that the that the professional can give to this. And so I think as professionals and clinicians, part of our job is to do things like listen to these podcasts, to attend conferences, to read, to try and destigmatize and to try and manage our own emotional discomfort around this material. So whenever a survivor does choose to talk to us, that we're ready, we're ready to receive it, we're ready to hear it, even if it's only in a very brief context that's not in a formal therapy setting, that we're able to accept it without feeling we need to shut the person down or go straight into a very technical language around safeguarding or other ways that we may do what society has been doing for decades, which is to turn its head away in shame and disgust at the face of child sexual abuse. It sounds like from what you're saying there that institutions can learn a lot from the individuals that are involved in this work in terms of coming to terms with how to break the silence and support, you know, people working within institutions. I mean, it it feels like the kind of survivor approach that you've taken, the co-production approach that you've taken is fundamental in all of this. Could you say something about the way that this work is happening and that kind of survivor-led side of it in a bit more detail? So one of the things that made me want to work at The Truth Project was 
that it was co-designed by a group of survivors called the Victims and Survivors Consultative Panel. Now, these were the people who had campaigned for a long time and had engaged with government. And then whenever the inquiry was launched, they were appointed as consultants to the panel. So they were they were not employees, they were independent of ICSA, but they consulted to it on matters relating to they weren't representing all survivors, of course they couldn't, but they often had decades of experience of working in the area of sexual violence. And so they had a lot of expertise on top of their lived experience, which they could bring to help the inquiry understand how to safely engage with survivors and how to understand use of language and all of those complexities and nuances that a group of largely civil service staff were not socialized to, because why would they be? So one of the things that we found when we did our follow-up research, looking at the experience of people who came to the Truth Project, was a lot of a lot of the participants in our research they talked about these environmental details, little things like being given choice over what was in the room, colors, smells, what food and drinks were available, things that you would just never think about. <laughs> in a mainstream therapeutic mental health service because you just wouldn't have the capacity or time. I'm, I was a bit puzzled about where this had come from, really. And I sort of did a bit of digging because it was sort of set in whenever I joined the Truth Project. I joined in 2019 and it had already been running for three years. So I wasn't sure about the, uh, the evolution of the model that we offered to survivors. And it was only with a bit of digging that I found out that actually this had been designed by the Victims and Survivors panel. These were priorities for them that we take account of environmental considerations in order to provide that sense of safety, in order to give survivors that sense of control and choice, in order to be mindful of triggers. And that really mattered to some of those Truth Project participants who we did follow-up interviews with. But they didn't know that that was survivor-designed. And yet for me, I would love to go back to them and ask them because my sense is they may have felt something. They may have felt something of that survivor sensibility, that little eye for detail that maybe as a psychologist, I might have missed if I was designing it. And I just thought that was a sort of beautiful example of how having survivors right at the beginning, developing the architecture and foundations of these services can pick up on things that even very experienced and well-meaning and well-read clinicians and researchers might not just be attuned to. What can people coming to this talk that you give in Glasgow in June expect? One of the things that I promised myself when I left the inquiry or when the inquiry finished, I was there in a part-time way right until the end, was because I had witnessed the struggle of many survivors to come and share their testimony, partly out of a desire for their own experience to be believed and validated, but also through a form of citizenship where they saw them, that they had responsibility to share their knowledge in order to prevent future generations of children being subject to the abuse that they were. And that shows an extraordinary generosity for people who really have been so badly let down that they don't owe society anything as far as I'm concerned. And yet there was still this desire for civic participation and contribution. 
So I promised myself that if people could go through that in order to make the effort to come and get on a train and revisit some of the things that are the worst things that have ever happened to them, the very least that I can do is go and tell people about what they told us. So that's my motivation to attend the conference. But it's also to bring a challenge. When I was working at ICSA, I became very interested in this idea of storytelling. What's it about? Because for me, narrative storytelling on its own has an important function. But offering those survivors a testimonial justice, we will hear your story, was important. But it didn't it didn't go all the way I thought it needed to. There was still a lot of social and economic disadvantage that people who have been abused in childhood face as a result of the disruption to their education. They struggled to engage with different public services, even to access health services. Oral health services can be challenging. So it, it leads to a lifetime of marginalization for some survivors where there's a kind of double injustice. There's the injustice of not being protected from abuse. And then there's the injustice of marginalization as a result of the abuse you've suffered. And I think that's certainly true in mental health services. And I think it's particularly true in the area of personality disorder treatment. So I became interested in the political potential of storytelling. And I lit upon the work of the philosopher Hannah Arendt. And I'm going to talk about Hannah Arendt at the conference. And one of the things that I became really taken with is Arendt's in my clumsy, non-philosophical way, her critique of what science does to the potential for narrative storytelling and connection between people around sharing of stories. Now, there's a history in the side disciplines, psychology, psychiatry, psychoanalysis, of erasing and marginalizing survivors' stories of child sexual abuse in different ways. In psychoanalysis, it was Freud's complex relationship with the seduction theory has moved towards something that it was an internal fantasy rather than external reality. The marginalization of Sandor Ferenzi, who tried to bring in the idea of sexual abuse as a real problem for some of his patients in the 1920s and his marginalization within the psychoanalytic community. In my discipline of psychology, a lot of it's around false memory syndrome and the science that has been built up in experimental settings in order to undermine the credibility of people who have raised allegations about intrafamilial sexual abuse in ways that has led to really serious miscarriages of justice in terms of people being let off as a result of expert witness evidence. And then within psychiatry and the associated disciplines, I think that a big problem is around diagnosis in general and around personality disorder diagnosis in particular. And what Arendt talks about in science is that if we think back to the invention of Galileo's telescope, that what, what that invention of a scientific tool, which would, could only be used by certain scientific experts using scientific language, was that our sense of the world and this, our sense of our place in the universe, that that the sun revolved around the earth was changed forever, that it was that the, the sense that we had of the world around us was was completely transformed. And while that in some sense was true and important to realize, it changed the way in which we could tell stories about who we were, who we are in the world and how we made sense of our place in it with, with each other in a way that ordinary people could do. 
and it was usurped by technical scientific language that we might now think about in relation to statistics and some of the esoteric ways that researchers and clinicians use language in a way that is alienating to people's everyday experience because it usurps it, it becomes about the diagnosis of personality disorder rather than the story or the narrative that the person has for how they came to be in the distress that they're in. And there's a very real danger that we can undermine people's individual narrative storytelling abilities and the, the capacity that that will have for them to connect with each other by, by introducing an esoteric and sort of scientifically elite frame of language that undermines that. And I think there's a particular risk that the personality disorder diagnosis does that itself. And there was one example of a person who shared with the Truth Project. And I see, I think this is part of the tautology that mental health services get themselves into without necessarily intending to, but it has a really devastating impact upon survivors. And this woman shared her experiences with the Truth Project, but also talked about the impacts that the abuse had had upon her in her, in her adulthood. And one of the things that she said was when she reported the non-recent child sexual abuse as an adult to the police in order to try and get justice, because she had a personality disorder diagnosis, she was disbelieved and discredited. She will not be the only person that this has happened to. But that example is a perfect illustration of what Arendt's argument was, that by the imposition of a technical scientific way of understanding the world, we may completely discredit people's ordinary everyday explanations and discredit them as knowers and purveyors of narrative in a way that actually makes their mental health much worse. Mm -hmm.